Welcome to That Art Podcast. I'm your host, Alicia Dazenbrock. Now, before we begin, I'd like to caution anyone who may be sensitive to vulgarities that while there were no F-bombs dropped in the making of this episode, and in fact, I don't believe I swear at all, you should avoid all previous episodes and proceed with caution from here on out. If you're not sensitive to that sort of thing, help yourself. Today's episode is on Bridget Riley and op art. You can see photos of her art and links to any of my sources at elishadazenbrock.com. That's E-L-I-S-H-A-D as in David, A-S-E-N-B-R-O-C-K.com. Hopefully there'll be a link somewhere. So I'd never actually heard the term op art until flipping through a book on women artists and came across Bridget Riley. So I'm going to warn you right now, she's pretty awesome, but also a bit troublesome for me. First of all, she did not want to be known as a female artist. I mean, I can't really blame her. It's balderdash to need that distinction. However, I do think it's necessary to be proud of being a female artist, not as a way to play victim or gain sympathy, but because we have to fight so hard for it. It should be worn as a badge of honor, not a woe is me cross to bear, but to say, like, I played life as an artist on expert mode. I didn't back down. I didn't shrink away. I rose up and owned that. And I beat most of the boys their own game. I mean, the fact that we need to, like, we feel ashamed of being a woman instead of proud that we had to overcome all those obstacles. And it's like, we're not supposed to talk about them. It's just more of the same patriarchy trying to keep us down. So it's a shame that she sort of did the whole I'm not like other girls bit at the beginning of her career. But at the same time, it is really hard to blame her. It seems she was content to benefit off her publicity and basically blame other women for their own lack of success, not realizing that perhaps she was the exception and not the rule in a time when women were not allowed to be proud of their womanness and instead had to separate that part of themselves as much as possible from the artwork if they wanted to be respected. So basically, she suffered the same sexism as other women and just she just agreed to the terms and conditions in order to gain success. Then when she had the power to speak up for other women, she didn't care to. As was her right, she did have her own career to look after. It's just too bad that she actively spoke out against women who refused to toe the line at least once. Uh, According to the book Women, Art, and Society, she said, Women's liberation, when applied to artists, seems to be a naive concept. It raises issues which, in this context, are quite absurd. At this particular point in time, artists who happen to be women need this particular form of hysteria like they need a hole in the head. Okay, Miss Riley. (laughs) You do you. As of 2000, it seems she may have turned a new leaf. According to the New York Times article Modern Modern Op by Michael Kimmelman from August 27th of that year, she reluctantly came to accept that a younger generation of women, many of whom aren't abstract painters, embrace her for being a woman who stuck to her guns and stood toe-to-toe with the boys. She claims she was protected from getting involved in the ambitions and problems that involved other artists because she was a woman. I would suggest she avoided the problems of other female artists because she was too just too good to ignore. She goes on to say that she never wanted to turn herself into a travesty of femininity. She thought her femininity shouldn't be an issue, but neither was she going to make a fetish out of it not being an issue. In that sense, she agreed completely with the younger women of the day. I'd still argue her femininity was an issue, whether she wanted to make it one or not. It was her privilege as the exception that allowed her to ignore that reality. The second way I find her vexing is that since the 60s, she's not done her own painting. She's had her assistants actually create the paintings. Yeah. Then she complains because her assistants sometimes confuse her work for theirs. Whose fault is that, Bridget? Hmm? Maybe because they take your ideas and actually make them a reality, they feel a little connected to the work. 
According to Tate.org.uk, Riley meticulously plans her compositions with preparatory drawings and collage techniques. It is her assistants who paint the final canvases with great precision. While I think her work is wonderful, I'd be remiss if I did not mention this is bogus. Why not just do the paintings herself? She can. She can definitely paint. She can paint much more complex things than stripes. You know, or why not just use the collages she makes as the work? This turns the art of painting into nothing more than an assembly line. In the New York Times article, she claims her goal was to make the image perfect, not mechanical. In the sense of being exactly as she intended it. She didn't want it to be about gesture. How does an assistant do that more than her doing it herself? I just don't see the point. I understand the assistants doing things such as stretching canvases or packaging or even taping off the designs to save time and help her create as much as possible. But if your art means that much to you, how can you pass off the actual creation to other people? How can you possibly claim ownership or complete ownership of that work? The collage and planning are just prep work. That's like if I just did detailed sketches and let other people create the painting. I can't in good faith call that painting mine alone. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to judge. I save all my eye-twitchingly indignant judgment for that plagiarist, Jeff Koons, but really, I just don't get it. I also don't get $400,000 for paintings I do myself, so maybe I'm just not as smart as Riley and what's-his-face. Really, though, at least when songwriters have other artists sing their songs, the person who makes the song its final version gets the credit, or at least the most public credit. You know, the majority of people don't know who wrote which songs, unless it's like Dolly Parton. Everybody knows what songs Dolly Parton wrote. I will admit, if I could afford to pay someone to put all the research I do for this podcast together into a coherent idea, I'd probably do it. Like, here are all the cool parts I found. Write it up. I would definitely get more episodes out that way. So, all right, back to Riley. She was born in London and studied at Goldsmiths College and the Royal College of Art after being mostly homeschooled. The New York Times article goes into her childhood a bit and what may have been the cornerstone of her eventual art practice. When she was young, her father was a POW. And while living with her mom, sister, and aunt, they would relieve their anxiety over his welfare by going on long walks, discussing different light effects and the intricate characteristics of trees and waters and plants. Phenomena hunting, as she has called her intense encounters with nature, became a source of constructive distraction. According to Riley, to look very closely at a certain thing, after all, means you are also looking away from something else. While I don't necessarily agree that's always the case, that you are actively looking away from other things, I will say the idea that we must at least deem other things less deserving of our attention in order to get to what is most important to us is true. That's why there are still artists of all kinds making original work, even though technically it's all been done before. It's been done, but the emphasis is different. Everyone brings their own priorities and ideas about what is deserving of their and their audience's attention. So what exactly does Ms. Riley do? As I mentioned in the beginning, she does op art or optical art which is a form of abstract art using optical illusions in order to give the viewer the impression of movement or hidden images. Uh, as the New York Times article discusses, this is a bit of a dismissive term to use for Riley's work, although she's the biggest artist of this genre. Like She basically is the movement for op art. It pushes her work into the category of gimmick art when instead it's an important exploration of how value and color play off one another to communicate what we want someone else's mind and eye to perceive. I mean, what makes it different than a Monet, other than Monet was representational and her work is abstract? You can't get more impressionistic than Riley's work, in my opinion. Again, from the Tate website, her work her works were said to induce sensations in viewers as varied as seasick and skydiving. How can you get more impressionistic than that? 
she just stripped away the need for a contextual representational scene like Haystacks. Don't get me wrong, Monet is the runner-up baby daddy of my future offspring once time travel becomes a thing. I'm just saying, Riley clearly took what they were doing and decided she had more to say about it. And that's what I love about art. It's a centuries-long conversation between artists. It's a timeless discussion of ideas and creation that we can jump in at any point and say what we need to say. The true masters further that conversation and take it in a new direction or push the topic to the outermost boundaries. Riley got to say, wait a minute, Monet, wait, Surratt, what if we did this? And you can't remove her work from the discussion without stripping away a key part. She said herself, to treat images of the past as historical documents or as evidence of outmoded concepts is wrong. They are specific solutions to ongoing artistic problems. This is what makes them of interest today. I'd argue they have value in and of themselves, but acknowledging that they still have something to say to artists today, artists who on the surface seem as far removed as can be, is a necessary point. Only fools create art in a vacuum. So going back to the Tate write-up, the path to her interesting style began with figures, then moved to semi-impressionism, to pointillism, and finally to her signature work focusing on the dynamic potentialities of optical phenomena, producing a disorienting physical effect on the eye. So speaking of pointillism, she studied Surratt's style and his formula quite voraciously and then even went on to correct some of his paintings because he didn't always follow his own methodology. She was like, hey, Surratt, I think what you really meant to say is this. And then she did it. So, you know, <laughs> and the best part is you can't even compare that to mansplaining because she actually used his exact method when he failed to. So, of course, he probably meant to do it that way. I'm just saying. Uh, according to the book Women Artists in the 20th and 21st Century, Riley's most known for her black and white period starting around 1961, where she took light and dark contrast to extremes, but she quickly moved on to using color as well. From the start, Riley had been concerned with what she terms the formal structures of seeing, just as were the Impressionists and Pointillists of the 19th century, who understood what they saw as primarily a spectacle of light and color. So again, how do you get more Impressionistic than her work. Riley's works were concerned with rhythm, dynamics, and an exploitation of the tensions between individual colors and the color continuum. Stripe combinations were used to cancel out individual color identities in favor of a single color flow, which I personally find fascinating. Color theory is my jam. So Riley became a legitimate star. Her 1965 exhibition with some other guy in London was sold out before it even opened. That's sexy. Her work was appropriated by fashion companies who turned them into ugly dresses, which helped lead to the eventual copyright laws that we all know and love today. So thank you for your sacrifice, Miss Riley. I'm sorry they killed a little bit of your soul. So men, not just with the ugly dresses, uh, but in other ways, latched onto her rising name. See, I bet you were wondering when I was going to get to the truly angry feminist part. I would never disappoint you. Joseph Albers, the color guy who called her his daughter, and Ad Reinhardt sought to, and I quote, protect her from the wolves. Because she's just a little lady who clearly couldn't make it any further on her own without some man to save her. Thank goodness a penis was around to protect her, or her career may have ended right then. Now you may be saying, E, Joseph Albers is the bee's knees, and why wouldn't you think she was heavily influenced by him? I agree. He probably is, in fact, the bee's knees, and he almost makes me regret not marrying my high school boyfriend who shared his last name just so I could feign a connection. However, the second part of the question is a bit obvious. She was in another country. She's fairly open about her influences, at least it seems to be. She's, she's more than happy to discuss Surratt and the Impressionists, 
Um, granted, he was definitely studying optical art and movement long before she began, but it seems while he was crawling, she started off running. I can't find much of anything that would suggest he was an influence, let alone a great enough one to be considered her father. He seems to be more of a contemporary. In 1968, she became the first woman painter to ever win the grand prize of the Venice Biennale. How could she win in that category when she didn't actually paint her own paintings? I will choose to ignore that for the moment. Like how she was also the first woman to receive the Sikens, Sikens, uh Prize, a prestigious Dutch art award that recognizes the use of color according to theculturetrip.com. Among other awards and honors she received, she has two from the British royalty. According to her wiki, she, has, she was awarded the Order of Companions of Honor, founded by King George V, as well as the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. She's at the commander grade, so she's not a dame, but pretty close. Excuse me while I go print up a certificate naming me the Most Excellent Order of the Jamestown Empire, and then making everyone call me dame. Because, I mean, you know I'm going to get myself the highest grade. Her first retrospective in the early 70s was seen by 40,000 visitors, more than any other solo exhibition of contemporary art of that period. Those male tears must have been delicious. I wonder if she drank them at room temp or over ice. I bet fresh squeezed is the best. But wait, there's more. Also, according to the Culture Trip website, in 1999, the Serpentine Gallery exhibited her 1960s and 70s pictures, attracting an audience of 130,000 people, the most ever for a show there. So back to women artists in the 20th and 21st century, in the 80s, neoconceptual artists such as Philip Taff and Ross Bleckner took up Riley's insights, making obvious references to them in their work. Sometimes, I wonder if I'm giving too much credit to women artists. I feel masters should add to the conversation something so interesting, they influence the art world forever. So if most people never hear of these women artists, can we really say that they filled that role? Then I read something like the above quote, or remember how stingy men are with giving credit to women. I mean, I didn't come up with the whole teach a man to fish and he'll turn around and try to teach you to fish like he invented it and you're an idiot. So it must happen to other women, right? Then I start to think about how men put so many barriers in women's way and erase their names. Then I can't even remember why I started questioning myself in the first place. It probably has to do with the patriarchy and internalized misogyny. So the reason's worthless anyway. My point is, while there are some issues with Bridget Riley, She's also pretty awesome. Thank you for listening. Again, you can find some of her images and links to the books I have referenced and the internet articles on my website, elishadazenbrock.com.